You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Good to be here with you guys in God's Word. Uh, As he said, my name is Tamarcus Ragland. I'm one of the ministers here at Citizens Church. Um, If this is your first time uh, worshiping with us, uh, we're so glad um, that you are here. Um, And this morning, we get the great chance to uh, look at Psalm chapter 8 together. Over the past few weeks, we've been uh, going through a series looking at um, the doctrinal um, doctrinal beliefs and faiths of our church, um, and not just our church specifically, uh, lowercase c, but the church, right? Like the idea is that the, the truths that we um, have been talking about are things that if you found a group of believers anywhere and you were talking about these things together, they would be saying yes and amen, right? These are the, the core doctrines of our uh, faith as believers. And this morning, we're going to be talking specifically about the doctrines of creation and providence, or if I could frame it in a question, right, where did everything come from and who's responsible for it, right? Uh, I imagine that if you've ever endeavored to uh, go through a, um, you know, maybe a one-year Bible reading plan where you're going to go through the whole thing, I know I have a couple times, uh, and, you know, maybe I don't always make it all the way through, but Genesis always gets hit because it's first, right? And so those first few verses become really familiar, and even if you're not Um, super familiar with the scriptures. Maybe you've heard uh, the phrase, right, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And as believers, right, for the believers in the room, these would be um, familiar uh, beliefs and things that we believe to be true. And uh, one of the questions that I hope that this uh, sermon answers this morning is, why is that um, important for us? Like, how how does that truth shape our lives and how should it shape our lives? Um, One of my least favorite aspects of adulting uh, is buying a car. Uh, Any kind of car shopping kind of throws me off, especially used cars, right? Like, um, in fact, whenever we have bought cars in the past, my wife is generally the spokesperson. Uh, Her dad was a car salesman for like 30-something years, and they love it. I don't. Um, I'm typically the one who will, like, take a bad deal just to hurry up and get out. and so I let her do, do all of the negotiating. Um, but used cars are, are the worst, right? A new car, you kind of know what you're getting into. It's brand new. You're the first driver. It hasn't been any accidents. It probably comes with all the modern bells and whistles and stuff. But a used car, you got to, like, dig a little bit more, right? Um, and for any of you who've bought a used car before, you know that you never buy a used car without first looking at the car. You guys got it way better than the last service. Good job. Um, <laughs> Right, you gotta look at the car facts, right? And so um, my students in the room, you know, there's just a little brief lesson. Carfax tells you everything you need to know about the car before it got to where it is today, right? So you get to see, you know, how well did the previous owners uh, keep up maintenance? How many previous owners were there? Has it traveled across states? Has the oil change been uh, happening frequently enough? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And essentially, it tells you how did the car get to where it currently is in its current condition? Um, You know, should you buy it or not? And if you did, how much life could you possibly get out of it going forward? And so we could say, in a sense, right, the the doctrine of creation can serve as us as a kind of Carfax, only it's not as stale, right? It's not this list of just, you know, uh, arbitrary facts. But the way God has chosen to reveal the truth about creation to us is in the form of a story, 
right? And it's uh, the true story about how everything has come to be. And it gives us a proper perspective on what life looks like today and why things are the way they are. And it also extends and gives us hope for the future. Right, so put, put that in a, a different way, right? The doctrine of creation tells us what happened in the beginning. It gives us a sense of awe for the presence and hope for the future. And there are several places we could go in the Bible to talk about creation, right? Like it's not just found in the Genesis account, but actually all throughout. And what I hope we can see in this psalm uh, that David has written is it actually holds all of those different aspects of what this doctrine is meant to do together. Um, it's written by David. And what becomes immediately evident, right, especially to his original readers, is that David knew what the Bible had to say about where everything came from. Right? Like he knew that account. He knew the God who created it. And it, and it bubbles up in David as this response of, of worship and reverence um, as he glorifies God for what he has done. And so what is this, what is this vision that David knew? What was uh, revealed to him um, as he wrote this uh, psalm? He knew that in the beginning, the uncreated God uh, that we learned about a couple weeks ago, Jamin taught us, right, who is um, a trinity and lives in a perfect love before anything was made. He created a good world out of nothing, right? The, the cool uh, Christian word that a lot of scholars like to use is ex nihilo, right, which literally means out of nothing in Latin. Um, there wasn't something that he like grabbed and then kind of made everything out of like Plato, right? He spoke and things came into existence that wasn't there before. And right, this same God, right, he filled this world that he made with good things, and then he created good people, right, male and female alike, to exercise dominion over it, to enjoy the creation that he's made unto his glory and for their own good. Like this is the, the, the vision and the image of creation that we see um, before the fall. And again, this isn't just in Genesis, right? We get to see this teased out all throughout the scriptures, right? In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we see here the, right, the, the truth that God is um, eternally existent before anything was made. In Jeremiah 10, 12, it says, It is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens, right? Not only do we get to see in creation God's power and omnipotence on display, but we also see his wisdom, right, and his goodness and how he crafted everything um, to be good and in perfect order. John 1, 1 through 3 tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You tag that along with the Genesis account, right? And we see this uh, full Trinitarian picture of the Godhead at work in creation, right? All of God uh, active in, in making and creating the world as we know it. And in Hebrews 11:3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right, as stated, right, we believe that God spoke all things into existence, and we believe that by faith. And I want to tease that out a little bit more for us for the rest of the morning. The Hebrew writer says that we take uh, these things by faith, all of what we just mentioned before, which means this isn't something that's obvious apart from God's revelation. 
right? Like when, when Moses sat down to pin the words of Genesis, he didn't just look around and say, oh, it must have been, you know, this way. Like God spoke to him and, and showed him this is how things came to be before anybody was here. Likewise, David would have learned these things by peering into God's revelation in his word, which had been taken down. And we, too, get to look at that same revelation. And so as we look at at Psalms 8, I want us to to walk through that with these two questions in mind. Right. As as David is responding to these truths, um, maybe we can respond to these truths uh, as well and and see how they um, impact our day to day lives. And the first question is, what grace is ours when we believe God's story about creation? Like when we take this story that we see in the Bible by faith that uh, that God created the world as he has revealed himself, uh, what are the graces that are that are given to us when we trust that by faith? And then secondly, what danger is ours when we believe other stories about creation? Right. So what are the graces and what are the dangers? So for the rest of our time, I want to answer these questions in the the context of three themes that that pop up in the psalm. Um, that we that we see David uh, pointing out, right, that creation is glorious, that creation is governed and creation is good. Creation is glorious. It is governed and it's good. First, glory. Look at verses one through two in Psalm eight. David writes, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. The first thing that David declares in the psalm is that God is glorious and his glory has been made manifest through his creation. And of course, you can't talk about God and glory without you know, looking to, to John Piper, right? So Piper says something really, really interesting about God's glory. He says that uh, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness, right? In other words, creation serves as a physical display that there is nothing and no one else like Yahweh, right? That the God of the Bible is wholly different. Right. We might be able to look uh, to creation and see like, OK, I, I get a glimpse of God, but we only see um, we only know that that it's truly um, the God of the Bible when we see it revealed to us. Creation is meant to point us there. A friend of mine uh, used to ask these series of questions kind of as like an icebreaker um, thing that she loved to do with people. And it's the idea was as you answered one of the questions, it actually pointed to the answer to another deeply more meaningful question. And so uh, one of them was, what's your favorite aspect of nature? Um, And for me, that's uh, the stars by far, right? I love stargazing. Um, And my answer to why is, you know, when I look up in the stars, it makes me feel small, right? Um, Anybody else, right? If you, the more you stare at the stars, you know, your eyes kind of adjust to, to looking up into the night. And then all of a sudden it's like you see more stars and it just, the expanse grows and grows and you just kind of feel smaller and smaller um, as you do it. And she said, awesome. So the flip side of that question was, yeah, the, your favorite aspect of nature points um, in some way to something that you love or, or admire about God. And I was like, hmm, that's pretty, that's pretty cool, right? It's nothing like hard doctrinal about that. Um, but I thought that the exercise did uh, in some way point to something that creation was always meant to do, right? Like creation was always designed to stir in us, stir in us this kind of awe um, and reverence and worship and then to point us to God as a response, right? Like it's his majesty that fills the earth. 
It's his glory that's above the heavens. And as we look at those things in the creation, the, the goal is that it would cause us to render praise unto him. And the doctrine of creation, right, in this way, it directs our, directs our worship to him and for him to receive the glory, right? At best, again, right, we could look out and we could say, man, there must be a God or a creator apart from God's reg- um, revelation. But it's only by God's revelation that we can look and see No, it's actually the God of the Bible who has done this, right? We're able to worship who he actually is. Why is that important, though? Right? To go back to our questions, what happens if we believe other stories about creation other than the one that the Bible tells us? Well, as we'll look at the creation and we'll see the glory, but the glory will be falsely attributed, which means that our worship will be misguided, right? And that always ends in idolatry. And this is no small thing. Right. And we we even experienced this on smaller scales, right? Smaller scales of glory. Uh, many of you have probably been to a wedding or two before. Uh, I've gotten to officiate a few uh, in the past couple years, and I've grown to, to love that. And one of my favorite things to do every time I officiate a wedding is like right at the time when the, the bride is getting ready to come down the aisle is look over at the groom and see his face. Right. As he's watching her come come down. Um, most guys, you know, some guys try to give that like false bravado, like, you know, I'm not going to cry. I'm a man and all that stuff until they see their bride coming. And then it just that all melts away. Right. Um, imagine for a second that moment. Right. You're officiating the wedding. Everyone rises. The doors open. The song plays. The bride's coming in all of her glory. Right. And you look over to see the husband's face, the husband to be. And rather than seeing him gazing at his bride that's coming down the aisle, he's making faces at the maid of honor. Yeah, right? You just, I object, and then you walk off the stage, right? Um, that's not where is the tension supposed to be, right? Like, there's, there's obviously like, all of the, the beauty of the day, the decorations, the preparations, the, the cake, the celebration that's happening afterwards, the dress, the makeup, the hair that has taken undoubtedly hours, right? was supposed to direct his attention this way. And he's looking at the wrong thing, right? And this is, this is what happens when we are, are misguided and where we place our glory, right? It's like to, miss, to misplace your praise and to misplace the glory is to miss the glory altogether, right? If, we don't, if it doesn't terminate in the one who is truly glorious, the one in which all of these smaller aspects of glory were meant to ultimately point, we miss the whole thing. So what's the grace that's given to us when we believe God's story? When we, when we trust by faith that what the scriptures has revealed is true. Well, we, get to, we don't get to just worship kind of the unknown God, right? We get to worship God in spirit and in truth, right? That's the, the second line of the prayer that, that Jamin has introduced to us, right? We don't just say, life is a gift. Thank something, right? Like it's life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you, right? We're, we're not just talking into the abyss we're talking to a personal God who we can know, who has revealed himself, and we can rightly attribute glory to him. So that's the first thing, right? We see the glory in creation points us to the one who is truly glorious that allows us to worship in spirit and in truth. And the second thing that David is pointed to and we see in this psalm is um, the governing of God's creation, right? David reflected on the glory of God uh, present in creation, and it drew him to reflect on how God is provident over all he created, but not just um, in general, but especially towards human beings, right? In Colossians 1.17, we know that uh, all things, 
right? He is before all things and he is holding all things together, right? Actively, not passively. And so look at verses three through four. See what David comes to. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right, the God of the Bible is not compatible with like the, the deism that maybe some hold to, right? He doesn't simply create a world and then step away from it and just kind of leave it to its own devices. The God of the Bible has revealed himself to be one who is hands-on, right? God governs all things at all times in all places, and there is nothing that operates outside of his dominion, not even people, right? R.C. Sproul says it's simply what God creates, he sustains. And because God governs what he creates, we can be confident of his care for us. Right? This, is what, this is what David drew out of, out of the, the truth when he looked around thinking about the truth of um, the Bible and looking at creation. And this is a similar thing that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon of the Mount. Remember in chapter 6, verses 25 through 30, he's speaking to the crowds and he says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? And just like David, he tells us to consider, right? Look around. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Again, look around. Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Right? What's the danger when we believe another story? When we don't trust in God's story about creation? The chances are if God isn't the one who's in control and executing uh, his providence over the world, then that leaves the job up to us or somebody else or some other institution. And the reality is they aren't really in control, right? And so when we're faced with that reality that our life feels out of control, what that stirs in us is anxious, right? Worry. And this is what Jesus's point was, right? He says, we become anxious in our lives when we perceive that we are in control and are met with the reality that we are not in control, right? There are a lot of other things that cause anxiety, but he says that a sure way to get there is when we think that we're in control and we are met with the reality that we are not in control, right? That's the danger. What's the grace, right? We know that God is in control. And because of that, Right, we can trust that even when things perceive to be out of control in our lives, when we look around and we can't see control, we certainly don't feel as we are in control. Right, we can believe and know by faith that God is in control, that he, he hasn't stopped sustaining and holding things together. So we pray things right, like, God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand why this is happening and I don't think that I can fix this with my own strength. 
right? But we can trust and believe that because you are continuing to sustain creation, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that the same way you were when things were all good, you are still sustaining things now, even though it seems like it's all out of control. That means that, right, that God isn't just um, actively letting things go. This is why this is so important, right, that he is active in sustaining creation, his, his hands-on approach. When you woke up this morning, right, like God didn't just let the earth go around the sun. He chose to bring the earth around the sun this morning, right? He chose to pump oxygen out of the leaves and to put it into our lungs and to give strength in our bodies so that we could be in this room. He's not just letting things go, but he is holding it together. And as we look around and we see God holding things together throughout creation and around the world, we can trust that even when our lives feel unsteady, that he has not stopped holding all things together. He is provident. The one who had power enough to create also has power enough to sustain. David saw this, right? He, he looked and he saw creation and it brought him in awe of what all God has done, what he's continued to do and the ramifications that that had on human life that we are kept and cared for by God. So he says creation is glorious, creation is governed, and lastly, right, creation is good. And this, this idea undergirds the whole psalm, right? The structure and the logic behind Psalm 8 rests on the goodness of creation. David looks at the good in nature and all the things that God has created in the earth and in the heavens, and he, allude, and he sees how this alludes to the glory and honor that he's bestowed even upon human beings by being, uh, in nature of being created in the image of God. And that glory fills God's creation as a testament of the dignity of human life according to God's story, right? And it ought to stir us into this glory and this worship as to him, right? There's just this goodness that fills God's created order. But what do we mean by goodness, right? What does it mean for God's word to be good, right? Is that relative? What is the scriptures uh, saying exactly? And ultimately, the goodness in creation finds its home in God's goodness in his character, right? Everything being in perfect order. And uh, maybe a word that's more helpful the Hebrews had uh, for this idea is shalom, right? Goodness doesn't quite capture it in English, but it's definitely a part of it, right? It's this idea of goodness and wholeness and peace that is uh, holding and, and, and latent within all of creation that we see especially before the fall. And so you, it's, it's all of the senses that you get when you read the creation account before the fall happens, right? That the garden was this flourishing and beautiful place that was full of God's presence. And we were in that presence and it was safe and it was secure. It wasn't threatened, right? Everything was the way it was supposed to be. Okay, well, if that's, if that's it, how can God, or how can David write this song? Right, like, is he oblivious to all of the brokenness that's in our world now? Like, is he, am I supposed to just look around and see all the brokenness in my life and in those around me and just, you know, kind of say, oh, like, you just got to look on the bright side. Like, don't look at that part. Um, how does he arrive to this kind of uh, blissfulness in a world that's so fallen? Well, the answer, first answer is no, right? Like, David's not ignoring the brokenness. We, we actually know because of all of David's many other psalms that he's well acquainted with brokenness in our world, right? He's even really aware of how he has perpetuated brokenness in the world. And so it's not that we are just called to kind of ignore it. And so what, is, what exactly is David doing? And this actually leads us to the, the danger of believing another story, right? Like if the, if the naturalists 
are right, right? If the naturalist point of view is right about where everything came from, uh, that it all just came out of nothing, that there was no creator, there's no designer, there was no purpose, right? It's just all that we see. Then what we would have to do is look around and see the evil and the wickedness in the world, and we'd see it as a necessary part of the natural order, right? Like that this is just a part of nature. We can't avoid it, something we can do about it. It's always been here, it'll always be there. And it's just this, you know, uh, equal opposite uh, source of, of good, right? There's a balance, right? There's a evil and good at work in the world. And so we have no grounds to say that it should be any other way. Or if the deists are right, right, who, right, they would, they would say, you know, maybe there is some, something that has created all of this. There's some supreme mind and supreme being that's put it all in order, but he's, but he's not engaged. He's not hands-on, right? He just kind of created it. He gave man reason and he stepped away. Then we'd have to look around and see the evil and the wickedness in the world and say, actually, all of this is just a result of our lack of understanding, right? If we just knew better, we would do better, right? And so maybe we would be able to say under that frame of mind that, uh, man, I wish things could be different or things should be different, but we wouldn't have a grounds to say that this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And we definitely don't have a vision of what it ought to be because we're all still trying to reason to figure out what that looks like, right? And here's the reality, right? The Christian view isn't like either one of those, right? The goodness of creation that we can make out amidst the brokenness like a puzzle that's still in progress, and the ability to call out evil and say this isn't the way it's supposed to be, both find their home in the goodness of God that's been revealed through his creation. Right, like the only way that we can say this isn't the way it's supposed to be is if we have some kind of vision of what it ought to be. And the Christian story does just that, right? Everything was created good and we see evil as this disruption and this brokenness of what was created good, but that, that brokenness and that evil never fully eclipses the good, right? It never dominates the light. A guy that's uh, much brighter than me, Cornelius Plantica Jr., he wrote a book called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And it's all about sin and the way that it's uh, disrupted and broken our world. It's kind of depressing as you keep working your way through it, but um, it's helpful to give us a picture of just like the ramifications of sin. But what's interesting is as is, is broad as that those ramifications are, right, on a book all about sin and its destruction in the world, uh, this is how he closes the book in an epilogue. The quote's going to be behind me. It's kind of long, but it's worth it. He says, right, after teasing the effects of sin out, he says, but... Our experience today also includes wonderful bursts of hospitality by strangers for confused Alzheimer's patients who wander into their homes. It includes exultant worship, 50-year wedding anniversaries, and on some May mornings, a sense of life's sweetness and of God's goodness so sharp that we want to cry out from the sheer promise of it. Evil rolls across the ages, but so does good. Good has its own momentum, and corruption never wholly succeeds. Even blasphemers acknowledge God. Creation is stronger than sin, and grace stronger still. Creation and grace are anvils that have worn out a lot of our hammers. What is he saying, right? He's like all throughout creation, right? There's, there's no, no one's, no one's saying that there is no evil or the evil's not that bad. Like man has been working as hard as it could, right? 
to mess up God's creation. We have gone astray. We have sinned and broken God's law, and we have caused uh, great harm and damage on human life. And yet, there has somehow, right, never ceased to be opportunities and reasons to say, God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. Like, it's, it's never been able to fully eclipse that reality in our world. And so he says, yes, throughout human history, sin has continued to wreak its havoc on creation, but good has its own momentum, right? It continues to push forward. And this is the grace that is given to us when we trust God's story, right? When we think about the goodness in the world through God's story, though we are surrounded by brokenness, though we endure brokenness in our own lives, and though we are at times perpetuators of brokenness, we, right, by the power of the Spirit, can see and be champions for good knowing that evil has an expiration date, that it's not forever. There was a time where it wasn't, and there will be a time where it will be no more. And how can we be sure of that? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 point us there. Verse 6 says, it has been testified somewhere, uh, maybe in Psalms 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control or his providence. And at present, we don't see yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He has tasted death, so we will not have to. The doctrines of creation and providence do not call us to a blind optimism about life. That's not what this is. It is faith in a God who created all things and governs all things, who actively holds all things together by the power of his might, who has solidified the goodness of his creation when he himself wrapped himself in flesh and came down and participated in this thing we called human life without sin, showing us that sin is not a necessary property of being human. He lived a perfectly human life, a holy human life, that didn't consist of sin. That gives us hope. But not only that, right? His glory was most powerfully shown when he crushed sin and death on the cross, sealing the promise that one day, just as the world was created good and without sin, there will come a time when sin and death will be no more. And so what does that do for us, right? We can look to Jesus as the, the, the fulfillment of this psalm, right? The reason this psalm isn't just blind optimism is because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, right? We can, we can trust in him by faith, right? He is the reason we render our glory to him, right? We can trust in him and know that he is in control even when our lives feel out of control, right? That we can have peace and security in him even in the midst of the brokenness and know and trust that not only is he good, but he is working for the good in his creation, even when we're so uh, fully surrounded by brokenness. Here's the beautiful truth of, of all of that, right? As I walk through this and God wrecked my own life with just how uh, faithful he is in being uh, provident over his creation, it made me think of our 
Song of Benediction that we get to sing every week. Right? Like, how do we, how can we be sure that he will keep us? Well, because the same one who had power enough to create all the world is the same one who exerts that power and keeping and holding us as we live out and walk out our salvation. Right, that, that he is the one who is mindful of us, that he cares for us, that he wants to hear from us, that he is not only a powerful creator, but he's a good father. It's a reminder to us every week, right, regardless of what we came in here with, bringing the burdens that we shared, the brokenness that we may have perpetuated, the worries that we may have, is that it gives us an opportunity to stop and to look up and to look around and to consider. And maybe after all of the the worship and after all of the, the teaching and after the communion, we get to close out our service and be reminded that the God who is bringing all these things together and holding all these things together is going to keep us when we walk out of those doors. And so I'm, I'm not bleaker, so I'm not going to lead us in song right now, um, but we are going to pop those words up on the screen. And just as we close before I pray, uh, I just want us with those truths in mind to just recite them together, right? Being mindful that this is, this is why we can trust that this is actually true. The same God who created everything sustains all things. That includes you and your salvation that he has a power enough to keep you to the end. So if you will just let's read this together and then I'll close us in prayer. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to him who will keep you to the end, to him be the glory, the honor, and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. God, we love you. Life truly is a gift, and I'm so glad, Lord, that you have uh, filled your life with so many things that we just get to enjoy and, and glory in you um, because of it. Lord, I just, um, something that I, I, I pray that this morning was not, is I, I hope that what was shared didn't come across as just a, um, a blindness to the, the depths of brokenness in the world, Lord. I pray that um, again, that we would realize that, that your Bible takes really seriously how devastating sin has had effects in your world. But God, what I pray these, these truths do uh, stir up in us is a reality um, and, a, and a grandeur of just how much more powerful your grace is. Lord, that as was previously stated, there's, there's never ceased to be reason to give you glory, Lord God, that you've continued to hold things together. You've continued to surprise us with your presence and with your actions and with your grace and with your mercy. And I just pray that in the, the, the midst of darkness, Lord God, that um, even when we can't see all of that, Lord, that by faith, as David has demonstrated, Lord God, that we'd be able to just look around and consider that we'd be able to kind of broaden our view outside of our current moment and consider what all you have done in our lives, what all you've done in the lives of others, what all you've been doing since the very beginning and trust that you will continue to bring that about until you return. Lord, I thank you that you are a hands-on God. Oh God, that you do not leave us to our own devices, but you are intimately involved in our lives, that you care for us. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, may we find comfort um, 
and peace in our times of distress because of it. Father, I pray that as we uh, just continue in worship that we would uh, seize this opportunity um, to render rightly our glory and worship to the one who is the most glorious to you and just thank you for all that you have accomplished in our lives and in the lives of those around us in our church. Oh, we love you. See your son, Jesus Christ, holy and precious name we pray. Amen.